Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Each week on Profiles, we bring you conversations with members of our community, as well as visiting artists, scholars, and writers to hear the stories behind their work. As many listeners may know, Professor David Baker passed away March 26, 2016. He was 84 years old. Baker was a beloved composer, musician, and teacher. This week on Profiles, we're remembering Baker by listening back to a Profiles conversation he had with Bob Willard back in 1998, only a year after this program premiered. Here's Professor David Baker speaking with Bob Willard in 1998. Good evening. Welcome to Profiles. I'm Bob Willard, and this is our opportunity to listen and visit with people who have brought life and spark to the South Central Indiana community. Our guest today is David Baker. David, thank you for being here. Bob, thank you for having me. Okay. Now, let's get into introductions. Now, I'm going to take a deep breath because this is a long one. Okay. David Baker is a virtuosic performer on multiple instruments. He's a conductor, educator. He's, he's a distinguished professor here at Indiana University, a ranger, author, a composer of over 2,000 compositions for over 500 individuals and ensembles, including such people as violinists Joseph Gingold, Ruggiero Ricci, cellist Janusz Starker, tuba player Harvey Phillips, the New York Philharmonic, the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, the Beaux-Arts Trio, and many others. It just keeps going on and on. And he is currently the conductor of the Smithsonian Jazz Masterworks Orchestra. David, I have a question. Yes. Do you ever sleep? No, I found out there's really, that's just a waste of time. <laughs> what a number of wonderful things you've done with so many talents and accomplishments. It's, it's really hard to know where to start. So can we do it chronologically? Sure. You were born in Indianapolis. You're now in Bloomington. Okay. Now, what happened in between? In well, I grew up in Indianapolis, and I, you know, at a time when Indianapolis was, I don't know how much it changed, but it was totally segregated at the time. Uh, you know, the integration of schools didn't take place well until about close to the 50s. So I had the advantage of going to Christmas Addicts High School, which was a high school which spawned such jazz musicians as J.J. Johnson, Wes Montgomery, the Hampton family, uh, Jimmy Spaulding, uh, Virgil Jones, Leroy Vinegar, uh, and it goes on and on. Uh, then in 1949, I went very briefly to Butler University for one year and then transferred to Indiana University and came here in 1950. And um, did my matriculation here, my undergraduate degree, my master's degree in music education, and was exposed, of course, to uh, a lot of very, very great teachers, great influences, even though the school was very small at that time, perhaps maybe 250 music majors. I'm, that's, I'm guessing. But certainly small enough that you knew everybody, all the faculty, all the staff, and all the other students, not quite like the behemoth now where we're over 1,700 music majors. And that's it? Well, <laughs> then I, w I went on the road when I left. Well, I went on the road actually while I was still in school, but I also went on the road. In the summers, I played at one time or another with Lionel Hampton and, of course, with Wes Montgomery. 
I traveled with um, Stan Ken very briefly. I worked a tour with Quincy Jones. So all of these things, you know, in the interim, and I went away to teach in 1956 at a place called Lincoln University in Jefferson City, Missouri, as a, repla- a one-year replacement for a-, a student who had come here to do his doctorate. And at that time, I met and taught Julius Hemphill and the famous classical opera singer Felicia Weathers, who at the time was Frankie Weathers. And uh, so it was a very uh, kaleidoscopic kind of journey through the wilderness to, uh, to my return here in 1966 as a faculty member. And you've been here ever since. Been here ever since. But you continue to tour and do outside work. Yeah, because basically I think that my effectiveness and attractiveness as a teacher is largely contingent not just on what I do here, but what I do internationally, because that's one of the things that, as with all of my colleagues, helps sell the university and it helps sell students who are interested in coming here. But by and large, I found it a very wonderful atmosphere to grow up in, to raise kids. You know, I've been here virtually all my adult life. And um, for me, it was a godsend that after being on the road and having an accident where I had to quit playing trombone, that then Wilfred Bain, who was the dean at the time, called me in 1966 and said, David, we'd like you to come back here and put in put into place a jazz degree program. This was at a time when that was not a common thing to do, nor was it the tenor of, of thought about how you ran a school. I want to go back to something that, that, that you touched on already about high school yeah. that produces such people as J.J. Johnson, yourself, and, and Wes Montgomery, and all the other people you mentioned. What was it about that time that, that that caused that? Well, inevitably, well, first of all, there there's a couple of, of, of influences at work. One is that people tend to excel in the areas which are open to them, so that at that time a black was expected to play religious music, rhythm and blues, rock and roll, or jazz. You know, the very thought that I would ever play classical music, even though my training was as a bass trombone player, I can remember auditioning for the Indianapolis Symphony when Kusevitsky, when uh, Fabian Savitsky was there, and in no uncertain terms being told that even though they thought my audition was probably the best, that there wasn't the remotest likelihood that I would become, you know, a member of the orchestra. So uh, that's one influence, the fact that that's what was open to me. But the second one is perhaps a more pervasive and important influence, and it's the same thing that resulted in uh, the extraordinary number of people who came out of DeSable High School in Chicago and schools around Detroit that produced Barry Harris and people like that, is that there is a teacher, a central place, somebody who believes in the students. Uh, not that all teachers don't, but I mean that have a special interest. So I was very fortunate. My main teacher was a guy named Russell Brown, who passed away at 85 in about five years ago. But not only him, but a, a supportive group of Dr. Norman Merrifield, whose son later on was director of parks here in Bloomington, um, a guy named um, Laverne Newsom, who is still active as a player and as a teacher even all these years later, 
and a guy who was part of the feeder system into that school named James Compton. So I guess like that book that Suzuki wrote, uh, Nurtured in Love, and I had the advantage of being surrounded by people who cared about me uh, from the beginning. Before we get to some music, I assume your family was supportive of this. Yes, nobody in my family was musical, but there was nobody in there who was anti-music. I know I used to drive my stepmother crazy because we had a player piano, and I just loved to pump those, <laughs> pump those keys all hours of the day or the night if I could get away with it. I suspect I probably came close to causing a divorce because I was started on E-flat tuba, and my stepmother used to tell me that she would go visit her sisters because at this time families, you know, even extended families, all lived in the same area. You knew all your cousins. You knew all your uncles and aunts. And she used to tell me that during the winter when she would get within three blocks of home coming from her sisters in the afternoon, and if she heard me still practicing that E-flat tuba, she would go back so Dad would get off from work and dinner wouldn't be ready. <laughs> so uh, they, they, they survived despite my my shenanigans as a E flat tuba player. <laughs> okay, but they supported it. Yes, that was important. Why don't we hear some music? What did you bring for us to here today? Well, I brought a lot of things. Uh, perhaps if I were to choose, I would pick something like uh, Route sixty six by Nat King Cole because in nineteen forty four, this was what was hot on the airwaves. Nat was still a piano player who sang rather than a singer who happened to play piano. So I would say. Route 66 is what I grew up listening to with something called Easy Listening, Easy Gwen in Indianapolis. Let's do it. If you Ever plan to motor west Travel my way Take the highway That's the best Get your kicks On Route 66 It winds From Chicago to L.A. More than two Thousand miles all the way Get your kicks on Route 66 You are listening to Profiles on WFIU. Today we're listening back to a 1998 conversation with teacher and musician David Baker. Baker passed away on March 26, 2016. He was 84 years old. We have just heard Route 66, played by Nat King Cole with the Nat King Cole Trio. It's a selection of our guest today, David Baker. You mentioned earlier that you had an accident that kept you, you, you were a trombone player and had to change. Is that anything you can share with us? Yes, it's, um, I had the accident in 1953, coming back from a place called Lake Hamilton. I played up there with the Fred Dale Band. Incidentally, the Fred Dale Band was the band that won the first intercollegiate intercollegiate contest for in, a met, in Metronome magazine, and you did it by submitting tapes. Our band and the band from Los Angeles City College, 
And remember, this is a time when bands, particularly in the West Coast, were largely made up of GIs who owned the GI Bill. This is the kind of band that out of which came a Jerry Mulligan, a Shorty Rogers, uh, people like that. So we were in stiff competition, but we won. Uh, that band then, under Freddie Dale's uh, g- guidance and leadership, began to do summer summer uh, resorts. And we played a place outside of Fort Wayne called Lake Hamilton. And we played Lake Hamilton uh, during the summer, and uh, one of the drummers was still active around Indianapolis, Ray Churchman, and I were driving back, and I think Ray must have dropped off to sleep. And a farmer pulled out outside of Huntington, Indiana, and hit us broadsides. I was in a coma for seven days. And uh, when I woke up, I woke up in a hospital in, uh, in Huntington. Now, I came out of that, survived it, went back to playing, and it took a while for it to catch up. But by 1959, when I had joined the George Russell Sextet, I, in, in the meantime, had led a small group in Indianapolis, a place called The Topper. George Russell, I met at the school, Lenox School of Jazz in 1959, which is where Tanglewood is. And George was very taken with the players that I had brought with me, Joe Hutt, David, uh, David Young on tenor saxophone, Joe on drums. And uh, he came out and he listened to my band at the topper and decided he would make that his band, teach us how to play his music. He would become the piano player because we had a pianoless group. So he taught us how to play and put together uh, a group. Now, 1959... 1960, I think I went out with Quincy Jones for a while. But toward the end You're of... You're still 19- playing trombone. Still playing trombone. Toward the end of 1961 or 1962, it turns out that I had been playing on a dislocated jaw all of this time, and I would made adjustments. One side of my face hypertrophied, the other side atrophied. And there were so many consequences to this unbalance that all of a sudden I couldn't play without my teeth teeth clenching. I wore acrylic braces. Ultimately, I went into a hospital in Chicago called Pacifican Hospital, where they tried everything from sclerosing fluid, which is an acid they shoot into your jaws, to shorten the muscles so when the muscles are scarred, they tend to contract. They even considered severing the buxternator muscles, the muscles which are used to open and close your mouth, and then teaching me how to learn to use other muscles to serve that function. Fortunately, I had a, a doctor who was smart enough to say, we won't do anything that's irreversible. The long and short of it was when I got out of the hospital, uh, I was no longer able to play a brass instrument or a wind instrument. Oh, I went through the usual things. I thought, well, okay, why don't I try piano? So for one year, I practiced piano eight hours a day, only to discover that piano was an unforgiving instrument and it had wanted nothing to do with me. I went to bass. I played bass for about a year or two years, and my band teacher, Russell Brown, said to me, David, that instrument's not going to challenge you enough. So he went out to a pawn shop and bought a $15 cello and put it together and gave me the cello. And I jokingly, of course, until the day he died, I would say, Mr. Brown, how could you do that to me? You said I was one of your favorite students, and you would put, put start me on cello at 34 years old. Um, but I persevered, and uh, God works in mysterious ways. Had, had this not happened, I'm certain that I would have probably remained in New York, 
remained as a first call player, done the things that, I, that you do as in, under those conditions. But because that happened, I turned my energy toward what my first love was. I went back and looked in my yearbook, you know, some years ago, and I saw the place where it said, lifelong ambition, and it said, music teacher. So there was something there that told me even then that my calling really was as a teacher. Now, the benefits that accrued from being a player means that I brought experiential knowledge to the classroom. And I think I was one of the first people, along with Jerry Coker, to really be a performing teacher teaching somebody how to play jazz. Um, so I switched to cello and began to compose. I began to write books. And all of these things probably would have happened had not God put me in a situation where I had to do the thing that was right for me to do. And I didn't know that. I had no way of knowing. I thought playing the trombone, since I, and that came easy for me, and I had won the New York, won the New Star Poll in 1962, I think it was. And I thought, boy, I'm on my way. <laughs> but a higher power said, not that way, though. And uh, so I switched to cello. And that still remains my main instrumental performance. Well, I would think that would help you in composing because you're more aware of how brass instruments play, and now you have strings because you, you can actually feel it in your fingers. And so forth. Yeah, and plus the other thing was, in te being a teacher, you're put in a place where you're in a location where you have a chance to experiment, where you have a chance to learn from what the students have to teach you. Your colleagues, when my colleagues begin commissioning works, I think the first one of the commissions came from Joseph Gingo. And he told me he had heard a piece by Bill Russo, uh, and he said, I, we listened to him, we thought that was not appropriate for him. He said, well, why don't you write a piece? So I wrote a piece for Gingold, and that was the imprimatur of Joseph Gingold on a, on my, on a piece. Then I think the next one might have been for, I don't know if it was for Starker or Jim Pellerite, but then followed a whole slew of commissions from my colleagues, ones that allowed me to grow, uh, but also to have this interfacing with people who are the best in the world on those instruments. I wrote for Harvey Phillips, I wrote for Jim Pellerite, I've written a number of pieces now for Jim Campbell, I'm working on a piece for Kim Walker here now, I wrote for, uh, um, you know, Starker, and virtually everybody down here for, for instance, when Carol Winston's came here, she was here just a short time on flute, but she happened to be playing her first recital on campus the night that Tom Ehrlich was inaugurated as the president of Indiana University. She called me on the, that was a Monday night, she called me on a Saturday morning and she said, David, I realize that the president of the university's inauguration is the same night as my recital. She said, could you have me a piece ready by Monday evening? Oh, my gosh. So I wrote a piece on Saturday, got it to the copies on Sunday, and she and Charles Webb played the piece Monday night for the inauguration, and she dubbed me the court composer. <laughs> and, of course, we allowed Tom Ehrlich to name the piece, which he called Dedication, and it's in one of the major anthologies of flute music. Wonderful. Why don't we hear some more music? Okay. Uh, why don't we go classical? We can do that. Uh, maybe a portion of the Bartok and Scherl of Arsch. I consider, first of all, I consider Mozart the greatest composer that ever lived, and I don't want to be put in proximity to him because everybody suffers. But I, I do like, do love Bartok, 
and his interest in ethnic, his own ethnic origins, that is, sober Croatian, Croatian music, as, as was Kadai. And so I fell in love with the music of Bartok, and that wields a major influence on my writing. So this is, I guess, maybe the fourth section from the Bartok Concerto for Orchestra. Let's hear it. You are listening to Profiles on WFIU. Today, we're listening back to a 1998 conversation with David Baker. He passed away March 26, 2016. We have just heard the fourth movement of Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra, performed by the New York Philharmonic, conducted by Pierre Boulez. This was a choice of our guest today, David Baker. David, if you are composing for yourself, and it's for outcome, you don't need to have a commission, you just do it for your own enjoyment. What do you write for? Is there? <laughs> well, I've been very, very fortunate across the last 20 years to write almost exclusively on commission. But it's rare that I get an opportunity to, to write something. Everything I end up writing, I write because I want to write it, but to have the opportunity to write without having anybody telling me what to write. I see that's an advantage and as a disadvantage. The advantage of writing for as a, a part of a commission, all the parameters are prescribed. I know from the beginning how long the piece is going to be. I know what instrument it's going to be for, a medium it's going to be for. I know how many movements they would like. I know the peculiarities and the likes and dislikes of the person who commission the work. I also know when it's due. <laughs> so when I have all of those parameters prescribed, it's a little easier for me to write and write, you know, uh, with direction and with purpose and with dispatch. When I'm writing for, you know, something for myself, probably I would write the kind of piece that I just wrote for the Indianapolis Symphony. But I'll issue a caveat because Lots of times I do write pieces that I want to write, but they are pieces which are in the jazz idiom, pieces for a jazz band, functional pieces, Gabrock's music, if you're going to use the term that Hindemith used, pieces that I need to teach certain ideas, pieces that I would like to hear because I know I want to write for this. So I write a lot for my jazz band and my own groups, which are, of course, my own choices. I want to move to a, a little different issue. How you explain what a jazz line is on the radio. <laughs> a singer who sings a line, if you say that line is good or it's bad, it ought to be compared with the best that an instrumentalist can do. It ought to be prepared with, compared with John Coltrane, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, 
Bill Evans, whoever. Now, how can it be done? I've had a young lady named uh, Rachel Caswell who happened to be a cellist. So it was easier for me to teach her how to sing using jazz, the jazz language, because she already played an instrument that she had learned to play jazz on. And I find to this day that the ones who are jazz singers per se, really jazz singers, are Louis Armstrong, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Freddie Hubbard, Clark Terry, Sarah Vaughn, Carmen McRae. You know why? They're instrumentalists. And what they do when they sit down to sing, or sit to sing, and, and singing with Nat Cole, they bring to bear all of that wealth of information about these commonalities that occur in a jazz situation to the table when they sing. The rest of the people I consider basically pop singers who sing jazz. I would put in that category Sinatra and others. And I don't mean that in a denigrating way because I think these are some of the greatest singers in the world simply because I really believe that some of the best music ever written was written by these standard the people write standard composers, Jerome Kern, uh, George Gershwin, uh, Cole Porter, Hoagie Carmichael, Duke Ellington. So I love that side of it, but I don't want to confuse that with jazz singing. Now, you write music for all kinds of groups. You do it for trios, large symphony orchestras, for solos, for large choruses. Um, but you've written them for... Like the Beaux-Arts Trio, that's a classical group that does Schubert, Beethoven, Mozart, <laughs> and yet you could write something for them. Well, I like to think that what I write cuts across all of those artificial boundaries that we impose, like third stream, like classical, like romantic, and we understand what we mean by those. But by the same token, I aspire to be in that, to write the way Ellington said. Ellington said there's only good and bad music, and so consequently, if music was good, he simply called it rather than designated beyond category. But when I write, whether it's for the Beaux-Arts Trio or for Starker or for Gingle or whoever, I really write me. And I can't escape all those influences that are pervasive in my life. You know, I can't imagine you would ask Bartok to write a piece and then divest that piece. I mean, even in the last piece he wrote, which he wrote for Bill Primrose, you know, you would ask him to divest himself of those things which comprise his background, his upbringing, and the things that he holds dear that are mean integrity to what he writes. And basically, when I write for the Beaux-Arts Trio, they know who I am. They know what they want, what, what I'm going to write, or the, uh, uh, the kind of music I'm going to write. And if they didn't want that, they wouldn't call me. Well, we're going to segue into one of those. Okay. <laughs> what piece? I mean, well, you, we have a recording of the Beaux-Arts Trio playing. Well, this is, I think, one of the more popular pieces of mine. Uh, I can't tell you how many times Menachem has played this. Not only did they play the whole work, but then they used this movement as an encore time and time again for over a year. This is the boogie-woogie movement from uh, my piece, which is called Roots 2.
listening to Profiles on WFIU. Today we're listening back to a 1998 conversation with teacher and musician David Baker. Baker passed away on March 26, 2016. He was 84 years old. We have just heard the Boogie Woogie Movement from Roots 2, a composition by David Baker played by the Beaux-Arts Trio. I'd like to ask a question about the Smithsonian Jazz Masterworks uh, Orchestra. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's, we're in our ninth year. We um, were, we, I think we're probably the only orchestra that is a government-funded orchestra where we line item in the budget with Smithsonian under the military orchestras like the Airmen of Nola, yeah. what have you. Uh, at the time, Roger Kennedy was head of the uh, of the. Museum of American History at, uh, in Washington. And he had had this dream, and I think what crystallized it was the meeting, the, the Ellington Society met in Washington about nine years ago, and they asked me to bring a band there, knowing my interest in repertory music. And I put together a band and took the band here to play, and we played two concerts there. And it really, I think, convinced them that that was music that could be played. I, I, there were many of us who had been repertory people, but it perhaps gave them fi that final little boost. And so he contacted me and asked me if I would put together, if I would be willing to head an orchestra at the Smithsonian that played repertory music. I told him at the time I would be glad to do so, but my teaching demands were such that I would have to insist on having a co-director. I asked then that they hire Gunther Schuller, who had been one of my mentors as a composer. And um, so Gunther and I co-led the orchestra for the first four years. Then, you know, the crush of, of, of writing for him and all the things that he does, plus some differences in maybe direction for the orchestra, and then it was necessary that it be one person. Uh, fact is, uh, WFIU, carried our program for quite some time. And I'm amazed at how deluged I am with telephone calls from Seattle, L.A., uh, Maine, wherever. So it's, it's very exciting. It's an orchestra which the parameters have expanded. We started out doing strictly repertory, meaning music from roughly 1917 to, 19, say, 1940 or 45. I begin to reason that perhaps we have enough temporal and psychic distance that if the music is 20 years old, we know that it's, that it's classic or not. So now we're up to really about 1980 doing pieces from that. You know, I did, for instance, Sketches of Spain. I did Porgy and Bess within the last two years. I did Oliver Nelson. I did the music from... Uh, uh, miles ahead, the Miles Plus 19. I did the uh, music of Thelonious Monk at the Town Hall concert from 1969. So now we're doing a lot of things. We do stuff now where we have invited guests such as Mercedes Ellington, something called Suite 16 Plus 6, where I did music from 10 of Ellington's suites, he and Billy Strayhorn. I did the Shakespearean suite. I did uh, Anatomy of a Murder from the movie that he wrote. I did such, uh, such Sweet Thunder, uh, that is a Shakespearean suite, but I did Sweet Thursday, I did uh, the Pier Gent Suite, uh, the Nutcracker Suite, 
And it's been just such a joy because now we're inviting people to be a part of us. And we're using, asking people who have sung with us before, like uh, Joe Williams and people like this. So we're beginning to now expand the vistas of this orchestra so that it becomes, well, it is only one of three orchestras that plays in this manner, the other one being Lincoln Center and the other one being Carnegie Hall under John Faddis and Lincoln Center under Winton. And uh, now we're making our bed to become, you know, an international orchestra in the same way that Lincoln Center and some of these people with these huge endowments are able to do. Our reasoning was this. Any music which is not heard live is doomed to extinction. I don't care how you put it. Eventually, music that is not heard live and in live situations will not have the advantage of this reinvigoration. And so what we do is try to present... We don't try to replicate, you know, the sound or the playing of Coleman Hawkins or somebody. What we do is present the music in the style of the time so that my players know that if the music was written in 1940, they're not going to try to sound like John Coltrane. If it was written in 1920, they're not going to try to sound like uh, uh, Charlie Parker. And all of a sudden, music that has lain dormant for years and these kids and the older people tell me they come up when they hear a piece like Daybreak Express, or as we did a month ago, where I had Artie Shaw and Dick Johnson, who leads the Artie Shaw band, was standing in and he played Begin to Begin with Artie Shaw in the audience. And young, old, black, white, everybody went ape. So I understand that this music has a lot of life left in it. Oh, that's wonderful. What philosophies or code of ethics have you used to help guide you through your life? Well, I don't think you can get a better philosophy than to do, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. I also believe very, very firmly that the role of a teacher is that of a guide in a cooperative venture. I'm never impervious to change. I really believe that you have to listen to the voices. When people ask me, you've been teaching a history course now since 1966 at Indiana University, why do you still spend an hour before every class preparing the class? History doesn't change. And I said, our perceptions of history change. Unlike the mercurial changes that take place in a doctor, for instance, if I went in a doctor's office and I picked up a book and it said 1944, and that was on one of the tables, and it said quinine to treat some kind of disease, I'd be out of that doctor's office so fast they'd never even know I would have been there. But with music, it does not change in that mercurial way. It doesn't get better or worse. It just changes. And what I try to do is to present, present in the most open way what I think are important events, but to tell the students where they can find alternative views on this so that they're not just listening to me because there's no gospel according to St. David, but there is a set of guidelines that tell them Maybe you want to use this for the criterion in determining what it is you love and why you love it. I notice your wife is involved in a number of your projects. Yes, she's a very, very talented flutist and did her degree here all but the dissertation and in, a, in, ethno, in a folklore and ethnomusicology, but a super talented lady who plays flute and is my big helpmate uh, with my writing because she has to be a good writer. We did a book together with Herman Hudson called The Black Composer Speaks. But a wonderful player, 
a very, very good writer and a very good human being. I think we have a recording with, with all of you on there, don't we? Yes. With the a sextet? The sextet called Stepping Out. Could we hear something from that? Sure. Uh, there's one piece on there. I can't even remember the name of it. There's the slow one on on the album. It's called... Was uh, it Autumn's Dream? Autumn's Dreams. Thank you very much, sir. Let's listen to that now. have just heard the selection Autumn Dreams from the album Steppin' Out, all music by David Baker, played by the David Baker Sextet, and the flute solo is his wife, Lida Baker. <laughs> yes. So, so thank you for sharing that with us. My pleasure. Um, I just have one last question before we leave. If you were to do it all over again, would you do anything differently? Not really. I, I feel very, very comfortable with who I am. I would say that the, among the great treasures of my whole life, though, and I didn't mention them, but I, I would feel, be remiss if I didn't, are my daughter, who's a violinist and a teacher, and my granddaughter, who's becoming a violinist at, at age eight and is involved in virtually everything that I do. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention because that's my legacy. Thank you so much, David. Our guest has been David Baker, Performer, arranger, composer, writer, author, everything you can think of in the music and arts field. He's been our special guest today. We thank you so much. This is WFIU. I'm Bob Willard. This is Profiles. And I think we'd like to end with a Duke Ellington composition. Well, this is one of the compositions from one of my favorite works, The Shakespearean Suite, Are Such Sweet Thunder. And this is a wonderful piece called Star-Crossed Lovers. Let's hear it. And thank you again, David, for being with us today. Thank you, Bob.
That was Bob Willard speaking with Professor David Baker in August of 1998. Baker passed away on March 26, 2016. He was 84 years old. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.